Hi, I am Lidi Pereira. I supported the floppy disk fever book and you are listening to the Scene World podcast. Hey, it's the Scene World podcast. Hello. I'm AJ. That's your uh what's up? Well, in a minute we will talk to Damian Rogers from the um, Game Preservation Society mm-hmm. in Tokyo, Japan. That's awesome because it's our second part of um, the Japanese retro series we started last year. Yeah. And it took us yeah. one year and a half to get this interview here. So hopefully you enjoy it. And um, But before that, we actually would go into the news section and I just got three news items how many news did you get i got two. Oh, nice okay do you want to start sure um well the first one is that the uh the the nes coding competition uh nes dev 2022 2022 <clears throat> the the nes coding competition nes dev 2022 has uh ended and the results have been announced so I like the um, first variant better. Do you? <laughs> two. <Okay>. Yeah, two. <laughs> uh, um, so the winner is Tactus, which is a, a dungeon crawler. Um and then and there's there's a couple of, of good looking games. They're all NES games. They're they're you know, the irritating ship, uh, which is sort of like like asteroids and or gravatar. And uh, and it's Steel Moon, which is a, a free-scrolling asteroids type game. Awesome. Um, they were both out, so um, yeah, they're they're there's a bunch of cool games. We'll put a link to where you can check out and uh, download the the winners um, and and see the results. The other one is that the um, VC3 2022, which is the Vintage Computing Christmas Challenge 2022, Ooh. has been announced. And it is, um, Logiker is uh, a dude, I, I suppose. And um, the... Yes, he's the one responsible for the German mm-hmm. digital talk magazine. Yeah, right, right. And, and, and so, he also does some some things like competitions and stuff. Yeah, yeah so basically what this what this is, is that... that you have to write a basic a program that, which will display a basic a a, a a Christmas star, and and it shows you you, you got a picture of what the star is, and um, it has to have the the same shape as that. It needs to be, you know, uh, anywhere on the screen. Uh, it can be any color, but you know it needs to print out this this particular star. And I and I guess the the challenge is to write the most um, the most um, efficient uh, program to do that. Awesome. Well, as we jump into the topic program, my next news items fits mm. to there. So, the um, AI-based search engine called ChatGPT actually got released for the public, mm-hmm. so everybody can use it for free. And it's interesting because you can make search queries um, based on on sentences. 
So, it made. Did you see that that it wrote a basic program? That's exactly what it wanted to mention. Oh, okay. You can okay. say you can say, hey, write me a basic program um, that that mimics a Tetris clone. Mm -hmm. So, so it will write a Tetris clone in basic. But of course, the basic it will you will, will be using is QBasic because that's the one used on on the PC, right? Right, right. right. So you can actually use the code of the written QBasic program, paste it into the um, search field, and write, please transform this program to work on Basic 2.0 or the Commodore 64, and it will do that. And also, you can see, you can say, um, please make make the Tetris game more fancy, and yeah. we'll make it more fancy, or add more colors, and it will add more colors. Hmm. So it's totally awesome. And and if it happens that the program the AI wrote doesn't work, you can actually use the code, paste it again into mm -hmm. the into the uh, the input input mask, and say. Please fix the errors in the program, and it will fix the errors in the own program it wrote. It's totally amazing, and you can even do stuff like, if you describe it correctly, you can you can even do stuff like, please behave like MS DOS. Yeah. And yeah. then then it will invent a directory and stuff, and act like a DOS machine. So so it's super super crazy what you can do with it. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. did see well, just it, from the yeah. from the from the other stuff that it's you know it, like it writes full paragraphs of of if you ask it to explain something it'll it'll write you out like like a, a full paragraph explanation of some physics theory or something like it's it's like it's highly advanced like like chatbot stuff. Well, I still have this turbo overkill mm. um, review that I want to do for our YouTube. I'm planning to use it to help me with the script. Okay. Well, cool. Because because if you use it for that, it will actually know the game you are talking about mm. and make a script you can read off describing a review of the game. It's totally amazing. All right. So you don't have to pull it out of your own brain. Yeah. You can use an AI for that. Yeah. And if you and I also tried it in during lunchtime. Mm -hmm. You can even say like make the review bigger so it is suitable for a video longer than ten minutes. Mm -hmm. And then it will take the the whole script and make it more detailed and stuff. Yeah. So, super amazing. Hmm. So I think this will totally change the way it works, uh, the way cool. the way searching works. Yeah, yeah, it's very yeah. cool. Exactly, exactly. Hmm. So what else have you got? That that was it. I I okay. my two bits. Well, the other thing is, we had um we had the guy from uh, the C sixty four key keycaps project. Mm -hmm. And um, actually, they are in shipment now. Oh, really? Yes, finally. Okay. So, Took long yeah. enough. But I guess it will not arrive bef before until after Christmas. Now, is um, this because, because we it's had a shipped couple from of, China? 
a couple of, of keycaps things because mm. we talked to Jim Drew. Yeah, that yeah, that was no, no, no. The other one was um, an an Amiga replacement keyboard, mm-hmm. not keycaps. Okay. And the and then we also we also talked to Mountain to Mountain Buffalo, mm-hmm. Mountain Buffalo, right, right, which was also a replacement keyboard, but. Mm-hmm. Jim True was the only one we spoke to about keycaps. Okay, so that's who we're talking about. Exactly. Okay. Jim True. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I remember but, there being a lot of controversy about that because a lot, of, you know, a lot of people didn't think he would, he would deliver. Well, it's shipped now. He posted photos and stuff, mm-hmm. but it will take long to arrive from China. Yeah. It's directly shipped from the factory. Yeah. Well, at least they exist. German customs will will be happy that I have to yeah. pay value added tax when yes. it comes here. Yes, they Ooh, will. yeah. <laughs> mm. Ah, Commodore sixty four keycaps. Uh, thirty, thirty, thirty euros. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know the original project from Phase Five from Austria. Yeah. Unfortunately, never materialized. So that's what I originally thought you were talking about. Was the phase no, no, that five. was the one in Austria from Phase yeah. 5. Right. But Jim True is is uh, from CBM stuff mm-hmm. from USA. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Totally, two totally different projects. But mm-hmm. as we learned, as we learned during the, the interview, he actually offered to take over the order the orders from the Australian guy mm-hmm. and he acted like ha 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 never <laughs> so <laughs> yeah yeah anyway I didn't make the same mistake this time I didn't order five sets I only ordered one yeah so now because you for the Australian for the Austrian <clears throat> guy I ordered five yeah and I lost a lot of money Right. I will be also losing a lot of money, but because of it's not coming from the EU. Yeah, right, right, right. But that's a different, different reason. Hmm. Yeah, well, and the third news is um, that recently a new RTS was um, was released, mm. and that's called Crossfire Legion. Yeah, I just, which, I just read about that, yeah. Which is interesting... Because the developers actually used Act of War as um, as a well as a role model, mm-hmm. and this is this Act of War is um, a strategy game from 2005, if I'm not mistaken. So right, it's right. actually a ren- rendition of a well, or you would say a spiritual successor of. Um, of those old strategy games, and also many compared to um, Command and Conquer Generals, which was released in 2003. Hmm. So yeah, and um, and last weekend, so yesterday actually, they had a free weekend where you could try the game for free. Right. And I liked it. I really liked it. So I might be getting I might be getting it. Um, cool. The, yeah, yeah. So 
And next year, we are waiting for Tempest Rising. Mm-hmm. The next real-time strategy game. So, the yeah. genre is on the race again. On the rise again. <clears throat> yeah. Well, that would be all my news. So, I guess. Yeah, that's all let's I Let's jump to Japan and talk about game preservation. Yes. And I'll be, I'm not, I'm, I won't be here for this. I'll be in the Why interview. I, I'll be in the interview, but I won't be, I won't be in this spot because, because right, it was, it was right. a weird time that, because we had to, to coordinate with, with Japan. Mm. So it was, a, we had to do it at an odd time whilst I was not at home. True. So my audio quality may not be as good as, as normal. So I apologize True. in advance. True. Okay, well, right. talk to you then. Bye-bye. Mm. Today, we are in the part two of the Japanese interview series, where we cover what's going on in Japan. And today, we actually talk to the Game Preservation Society in Japan. And our guest is Damien Watchers. Hello, Damien. Nice to have oh, you here. Sure. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Awesome. There's actually a lot going on in Japan and not a lot of people actually talk about it. But I saw you have been interviewed before by the Video Game History Foundation. Yes, yep. So actually you're not an unknown figure. Let's start perhaps as we always start with our guests. How did you get involved into computers and video games? What was the starting point for you actually? My story personally isn't very interesting. I had an Atari computer when I was very young. It was half learning how to program on basic and half playing video games. So I naturally worked with floppy disks and all of that old kind of media growing up with it. It's very natural for me. And growing up programming, work as a software engineer now, that's my primary work. I've always had an interest in the technical side of things in like when even playing video games, I'm a big fan of the Sonic the Hedgehog games, the classic ones. And I would always spend my time putting in the debug code and messing around there. So I've always had this interest in the sort of background, the technical. And doing that, uh, being on that side of the internet as I grew older, the more technical side, I eventually met the Game Preservation Society, and uh, which is led by Joseph. So his story is a lot more interesting than mine. So I should really tell you the story of the Game Preservation Society. And we'll, we'll get to that next. But uh, that's basically was the that's basically it. I've always had a technical interest in computers and especially the older side of things, and uh, that's just led into a natural appreciation and desire for preservation of these games and really of all software. We think it's very important. I think it's very important that we preserve these for the future. It's just been a natural progression. I feel for me. You mentioned Joseph. It's a Joseph Raiden. I believe it's it's pronounced right. French because I it's Redone, but yes, Redone, he's, he's French. Exactly. Yes. And you actually don't strike me as a typical Japanese either. So <laughs> that is true. I only pretend to be. No, it's true. Game Preservation Society was founded by Joseph originally back in France, is where he started the whole idea for it and the whole work for it. But it was predicated on his love for Japanese games. So when he moved to Japan, he brought that that passion with him, and that eventually led to the Game Preservation Society, which is mostly Japanese members. However, it was founded by Joseph, and there's only, I think I'm the only other foreign member. There's me and Joseph are the only foreigners, and the rest are Japanese. But of course, Joseph being French, I am the native English speaker in the group, so 
here I am doing all the interviews and then the FaceTime with people. So you're right. I'm not Japanese, but I speak for them as best I can. The group that is. Yeah. And I just read uh, the Japanese part is actually, it has a co-director and that's Takura Fukuda, right? Fukuda-san. Yeah, Fukuda-san. Yeah, a very smart guy. He developed some of our hardware, actually, including the, I believe it was the, the arcade game action logger he developed. He also did some work on our, some of our Pauline accessories. I believe he worked on the, the drive speed measurement tool. So yeah, there's Fukuda-san is very smart. I don't know his exact history. <laughs> Joseph would certainly, but uh, yes, he's the co-director. Yes. Awesome. I, I've also seen on YouTube, you also do documentary and stuff. So not only game preservation per, per se, but also story preservation. Exactly. So what does the Japanese Preservation Society do as a whole? As a whole, it's all in a word, preservation, isn't it? We have three main divisions of work. We have our, we have our preservation work, of course. We have awareness projects and we have partnership projects. The preservation is, of course, it's extracting data from ROM chips. It's making copies of floppy disks. It's, it's scanning and packaging. It's everything related to it. It's tracking down old catalogs of games. If I can diverge on a different path here for a second, one of the things that we focus on at the Game Preservation Society is preserving Japanese computer games from the 1980s in particular. A focus on hardware like the PC-88, even the more prolific MSX, or the there was the FC-1. I mean, there were so many personal computers in the 1980s in Japan. And a lot of the developers that went on to make some of the prolific games of the 1990s that many of us know when Japanese video games really exploded around the world in the 1990s, a lot of those developers got their start with home computers in their living room. And those were the PC-88s, they were the MSX-based computers. And there were many games that they wrote in this sort of nascent era where they were just sold to their computer shop. And there, maybe there was like 100 copies total. Or they were sent into a video game magazine. I shouldn't even say video game, a computer magazine. And it was reprinted there. So there's all these bits of tiny bits of video games that are could be forgotten very easily if they haven't been already. There, there's there's ten times more computer games from the '80s than all of the Nintendo and Sega games from the '90s. There are the common media from the this era is called the MyCom era. The word in Japanese for these small all-in-one home computers was called a MyCom, and this was all on floppy disk and tape. Right now in the GPS, they have about 25,000 of those items in their archive. 99% of those have never seen a release in the West. They are unknown around the world. So we want to ensure those are saved for the future. We want them to be saved, to be recognized as the kind of culture that they are. We feel that video games are not just for fun and play. They represent works of art, works of culture. They represent a certain time and place in history and they are worthy of being preserved just as much as a Picasso, a statue. They may not be on the same technical level, not all of them certainly, but they are important nonetheless. Especially if you want to look at the trajectory, the history of video game history, you want to look at, fill in as many places as you can. Even if it's a tiny printout of some amateur program, amateur game, a video game magazine, or very early Square games, very early Nihon Falcom games that were only released on discs and tiny little computer stores that are this close to being lost if we don't find those discs and preserve them properly. That's what the GPS believes in, what we try to do. And yeah, I, I diverged there and I forgot what the original 
point of the question was there. So <laughs> no problem. No problem. <laughs> the story is what it's all about to preserve this. And th there will always be an audio version of this, even on archive.org. So it will be okay. kept in eternity. Yeah. Now the thing is, here in Europe in 2015, video games became cultural good. So the governmental organizations here in, in Europe, in, in the U European Union. So that now excludes the UK because mm. they are not in Union anymore. They actually see video games as a cultural good since 2015 as, a, as on the same stair and level as movies. So mm -hmm. I wonder how it is in Japan. Does the Japanese government care or couldn't they care less? put it delicately, they, it, they are not as forward-thinking as the European governments are. And that is one of the challenges we face here in Japan in particular, is copyright law is a lot more strict. We don't have a lot of the wiggle room that some of the Western preservation groups do, that they can say, hey, we found this game, this very rare game from 30 years ago, here's a copy of it online. We can't do that. Besides the copyright law, we also are very close to some of these companies, physically and relationship-wise. We want to stay on good terms with the Nintendos, the Segas, the Taitos, the Namcos. We don't want, Japanese companies are very protective of their IP. All companies are, but certainly Japan as well. So we don't want to, as a preservation group, put this out there and say, hey, hey, we found this rare thing and then this company is, they're gonna think less of us basically. But governmentally speaking, the, there are things like the Ministry of Cultural Affairs is they have a media arts archive project that we actually do some work for them with and we receive a subsidy for, wherein we provide catalogs of these games. Because again, there's so many games, there's not like one big list any one place. So we help with their catalog of all this. We provide some of the scan work that we do for our own personal archive. We also provide to the Ministry of Cultural Affairs for their archive project. And ideally, what we really do want is, just like in Europe, where there is a, a national archive of video games, just like there's a national film center, that would be totally legitimate because we are a registered nonprofit organization and we strive to fit within those rules as much as we can. And that means, again, not being so free with some of the data we're able to collect, which we are able to collect and preserve as a nonprofit, but we can't distribute even things like scans of the covers, there's a certain limit to the size and resolution we can distribute without ticking people off, including the government and copyright <laughs> issues. But as of now, there is no national archive for video games. There is no recognition of them as cultural items at a national level. It's getting there. We do feel it's getting there. Again, there's the Ministry of Cultural Affairs, their media archive project. We're doing work for them. They're including video games. That's a start. This year, we actually did some floppy disk analysis work for the National Diet Library, where the Diet is the National Congressional Lawmaking Committee here. So the National Diet Library, we did some floppy disk analysis for them. So it's getting there, but between the more strict copyright law and the lack of a national archive for video games, it's not quite up to par with some of the other countries yet. But that's, that is one of our goals as well with the awareness projects and in part the partnership projects is to explain to people that video games are important, they need to be preserved, and that we are just not making copies of games wholesale and putting them online. We are actively archiving them, carefully putting them away, carefully extracting the data from this fragile media, and not just doing it haphazardly. We are, we're a legitimate organization, and we want to show the government and companies involved 
that's how we're doing things so that everyone in general has a better opinion of the whole concept of game preservation. Do you work with archive.org, with the Internet Archiving Project, in any way or form, I wonder? We had Jason Scott here on the podcast a few years back, mm -hmm. the head of archiving at archive.org. And they take, we take everything we can approach. <laughs> they don't really care much about local laws and stuff. And they put everything online for everybody to download. I guess that's not possible when it comes to Japanese. And there is probably also a culture and lang language clash and barrier at some point. Yeah, no, go ahead if you got more. <laughs> yeah, so I wonder if you have any connection to the Internet Archive in any sort. Not in any official capacity. I have not personally worked with them. I know we've talked about them to a certain extent. We're even wary of saying that archive.org is an end-all be-all. Archive.org is a tool, a very useful tool, a very appreciated tool, and we recognize its importance. But no one should say, if we put it on archive.org, it'll be there forever. I know you just said that a little bit ago. <laughs> we can't guarantee that. We said, could... we said the same thing about GeoCities. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I know it's a good chance it'll be there forever. Who knows? But you just never know. You always want redundant copies. But that aside, you're right. There, there is that whole limit. We can't put the data we receive online. We can't share it. It's still copyrighted. And if it's not copyrighted by an obvious person, we don't know the copyright status of it. That makes things tricky. The information that we can share, we generally host ourselves. We do have our own database of game information, which is currently Japanese only and working to be English as well. And we've been slowly working to make that public. But even then, that is an archive of information and at most relatively low resolution scans of the covers and media and stuff. It's still very important as a reference tool to say, okay, this game existed. It was released for this hardware. It was released in these formats, cassette, eight inch disc, five inch disc, but it's not the wholesale backup of the entire data extracted from the disc. It's not super high resolution scans of all the media. We simply can't put that online, whether it's archive.org or not. So we have discussed archive.org as a very important tool but it's not one that we can use in an official capacity. And again, that's that goes for any sort of, it's just a matter of we don't have anything to distribute because we're not allowed to distribute it. So it's a moot point to begin with. I believe you said earlier something about the language barrier. It's not even so much the language barrier. Joseph speaks Japanese pretty darn fluently and I'm okay. <laughs> but there is a cultural disconnect in as much as Japanese culturally have a I'm always unsure how to word this. Culturally, they're very ready to let go of the past. They have a very good handle on the passage of time. Very, a lot of things here are limited time only, and people are fine with that. Every month is some new limited product. You have people love limited time product products. So things that are things that are very old, obviously, they have museums, they preserve very old buildings. But I can think of a couple examples related to video games recently. There was the Japanese Nintendo original headquarters in Kyoto. And it's not a particularly old building. And of course, to game players, to game historians, it's a very important building, right? But it was recently renovated and turned into a hotel. And Japanese people in general didn't really bat an eye. Buildings come and go. It's, oh, it's Nintendo. They're a game player. They're making video games. They're making toys. It doesn't, didn't have any particular cultural relevance. So there was a lot of noise made online from the Westerners. Oh, it's a very important building. They should be saving it. Maybe, but on the other hand, Japan's also a very small country with very little livable land. You've got a 
there's only so much building wise you can preserve another nintendo related example i can think of there was a mario anniversaries limited i can't remember exactly what it was it was a mario level maker of some sort anniversary limited edition thing online and it only lasted like a few months and that was announced it wasn't like a surprise okay this will be around for a few months and then we're taking it down and when it came time to take it down you saw on twitter like all the japanese replies were oh thank you very much i had fun this was a lot of fun and a lot of the english language replies were oh you can't take this down you have to preserve this this is you can't end this so there's definitely a sort of cultural acceptance of things are limited and that goes reaching way back to what we were talking about that goes to things like video games which are still considered to be toys here there's generally not an understanding of video games being works of art as works of culture they are consumable products they come and go just like music and to a certain extent just like movies here a lot of people don't really think about preserving them so we have part of our awareness project is to spread that knowledge that video games are part of your culture video games are part of the world's culture we need to preserve them so wow there's that as well yeah, but I feel like that is not a Japanese exclusive point of view. We had also Dixon Wu from Hong Kong, who is the only person in Hong Kong taking care of what you are doing in Japan. And he, this, they, he said that people are actually putting roadblocks up for him because the people from Hong Kong they couldn't care less. And so it's wow. it really goes on par with what you are telling us now. Yeah. So the thing is, now that you don't <clears throat> that you don't have public access to your stuff, how does the has the preservation some good to people living right now? So is it like if I have something spare that is incomplete, let's say, for example, for my arcade machine behind me, there is a PCB and some ROMs are missing and stuff. Can I access the information somehow by writing to you? And could you give us the code of some ships to make a game that is rare and doesn't work complete? I think now I won't trade carefully here. I would ask Joseph for the details of what we can and can't do. So I don't want to promise anything, but my understanding is if it comes to repairing something that you legitimately own, that shouldn't be a problem. One of the things that game preservation society has done is something that we're particularly proud of is our work on deco cassette preservation. I don't know if you're familiar with that deco cassettes were the deco hardware was arcade hardware from the 1980s that was cassette based. And a lot of the classic games came out for it. Tower of Juraga and uh, Burger Time were on it, very popular games. But as the 80s went on, they died out because the cassettes would break or just fade with time. The drive mechanisms being mechanical would fail over time. So one of the things we've done is develop strategies and tools for fixing those machines, for taking the data out. We have backups of all the data as much as we can and then writing it to, to the tapes so we can repair those to a certain extent. So if you have... A legitimate copy of something i think it's well within the law to repair it and i would asterisk there that i don't know japanese law fluently so there may be little tricky corners there that i'm not aware of but to my knowledge if you have a legitimate copy of something and it's a matter of repairing it like your arcade board which is clearly marked for this game but the rom chips have been erased you could probably rewrite those it would probably be a matter of coming to the gps archive as opposed to sending the data because that's the thing as well if you are a gps member you can come to the archive you can play the games you can visit our library we have hundreds possibly thousands at this point of books and magazines japanese books and magazines related to video games and computers so you're more than welcome as a member to come there and do your research and again it's just a matter of it leaving the archive of putting it out in the wild that's something we can't do yeah 
So you are more rather like a helping hand to the public, if necessary, that could be provided. Yeah. So you're not that closed up where you would say we would never do anything like that. Because I always think in a project like that, there should be some benefit for everybody. Preservation must have to go somehow that people can access the knowledge. Otherwise, why would you preserve if you have to keep it under the carpet anyway? That is, again, a tricky thing because if we had it our way, certainly we would love to, these games that are 20, 30, 40 years old, things that who knows who owns the copyright, things that these PC-88 games, these MZ-1 games, these MSX games, I would be hard-pressed to find anyone who's interested in playing them these days outside of specialists who are into game history. Your mainstream Call of Duty, Modern Warfare, PS5, VR player is probably doesn't have more than a passing interest in these very old games. They're probably content with reading an article, seeing screen, like, oh, wow, things used to be like that. Yeah. We would love to say, oh, these games from 40 years ago, yeah, 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 no one's gonna, no one's losing money by us publishing them. That's probably true, but by law, we can't do that. So things do have to stay under wraps. Again, as a member, you can come and play the game, you can do research on it, but we can't distribute it. And that's just, that's not a matter of what we want to do. That is a matter of law. But we do feel we are offering a public service by preserving these games. Our modus operandi for preservation is we want to find the things that are most at risk of being lost forever. Now, as it stands, that is the uh, fragile magnetic media of the 1980s, the floppy disks and the cassette tapes. So that's why we focus so much on Japanese computers. The larger goal is, of course, preserve every single game in existence forever. But we have to tackle that methodically. So we have to say, okay, the most at risk of being lost forever is these floppy disk games. Okay, so that's what we're working on preserving. So our service, we feel, is that despite the laws not being very flexible or consumer friendly now, we are working within those laws to preserve them for the future. So at some point, if either copyright laws change or the copyright owners come forward and say, oh, thank you for preserving these, hey, you can release it now. Or in some cases, they've come to us with a source code. They have their source code on floppy disk from the 90s and they can't get it off. Either the disks have become moldy. That's a big thing is that floppy disks, besides losing magnetic media, is they get moldy very easily. You get mold on that disc, it's going to ruin the drive. It's going to become unreadable. We've developed techniques for cleaning it off with a variety of chemicals. Even for repairing minor scratches, we have ways of using silicone-based compounds to fix that up and get the disc red. So we've had game companies come to us and say, hey, we've got these old discs, and they, we get that off for them. We can't distribute it, but we've got the data off and we give it to them, and now they can re-release that game on modern hardware because they have the source code. They can improve it. They're not just emulating it. They are. They can take that game data, they can recompile it as necessary. And that's one of the services we offer in a roundabout way to everyone. But at a research level, we feel that even if the public at large can't play what we're backing up, at least it's there, at least it's not gone. And so sometime in the future, maybe things change, maybe they don't, but at least it's there so that someone can come and play it, can get screenshots, can write about it, can do research on it, and it's preserved. You look at your libraries around, uh, I'm sorry, not libraries, you look at your museums around the world in London, in, in New York, in Paris, and in Tokyo. They have limited space on what they can display, but in the back, they have a huge storage area, so they're not showing you everything. Good point. Even though people are still donating to them to do the work, to pay the people to preserve this and keep it in good shape in the back. So at times, it can be brought out. 
a false analogy in as much as we can't ever bring anything out <laughs> to give to people, but at least it's there, it's being preserved, and we're very rigorous about that preservation so that it, Joseph has said several times, the, the goal of preservation for us is if an item were to completely disappear from the planet forever, for good, we would have enough information available to reproduce it nearly 100%. We go as far as we have digital width meters for the paper to see how heavy is the paper, the weight of the cardboard, the manual, everything. Very exact measurements. We have professional grade color palettes with our scans to make sure color reproduction is perfect. Wow. Yeah, no, we go to great lengths to make sure that this is preserved at a museum archival grade level. This isn't just us with a scanner in a corner in a bedroom just scanning manuals. It's, right. it's a real operation. So. Again, the goal here, we feel the service is preservation of cultural artifacts for the future, even if the public at large cannot access them right now. If in 70, 100 years in the future, if someone's looking back at this stuff, there will be an archive of it. Whereas Correct. a lot of stuff, you think about all the documents and all the stuff that have been lost over the last over the last century or so, just because no one's bothered to, to save it. This is just prevents that. Just make sure that there is at least one copy of it somewhere. Exactly. Again, we would love to just open the doors and make an entire online digital archive of everything and say, hey, go at it. We just can't. Mm -hmm. If we did that, we would lose access to, first of all, we would lose our nonprofit status right away. We would lose the goodwill and good faith of a lot of game companies who have made donations to us. Nihon Falcom earlier this year, Colgato Studio donated a bunch of stuff to us. So we're trying to build goodwill with these companies to show them, hey, we are not just, we're not pirating things. We're, I think that's what a lot of Japanese companies see the Western preservation groups and some of the things they don't like it, the what Japanese companies don't like it. They're a little wary of it. And there really is a fine line between preservation and piracy. You can cross that line very easily if you're not careful. So we try really hard not to cross that line. And it's unfortunate, but that's just how it is. I shouldn't even say it's unfortunate. It's just, that's just the way it is. At least the data is getting saved. That's what matters. Yeah. You mentioned awareness programs that you run. Let's talk a bit about that, perhaps. So, for example, before the pandemic, every summer we would have a, a summer event. We would invite some member of the Japanese game development community over the years to come and speak, tell us about their history, the games they've worked on. It was a chance to meet this person. We didn't have we didn't have super, we didn't have Miyamoto on or Nakayuji or anything like that. But there were people who had legitimate impacts on the Japanese gaming community. <clears throat> so we would invite them, they would give a talk, and we'd have a nice little event over the weekend. The pandemic rolled around, that kind of prevented groups from gathering, and that kind of put the summer events on hold. So then we pivoted to doing the documentaries that you mentioned earlier. And that's really the crux of our awareness project now, is <clears throat> more than just the games themselves, we want to share Japanese video game culture as well. Because... American game culture and European game culture, we feel they're pretty well represented, but there aren't really any groups in Japan that are sharing this with the world. Really, the GPS is the only Japanese group doing preservation in general, and we're also the only group really doing this level of sharing Japanese gaming history and cultural culture with the world. So the documentaries in particular aim to focus on Japanese developers and removers who had a big impact on Japanese games and Japanese uh, gaming culture, but really aren't as well known in the rest of the world. So the first episode was Uichi Toyama, who did games like Herzog and so, so, oh man, I completely forgot. Ah, 
There we go. Herzog and Musha Lest and Terra Diver. Terra Diver, that's the one I was thinking of, sticking to the Japanese name. So he did a lot of early work on RTS games. So he and his games like Herzog and Musha Lest, those are really big here. And they were pretty big around the world as well. Not if you say Toyama to most people, even gamers, they're not probably not going to recognize the name. Same with our most recent episode released just a few weeks ago. We focused on Arika Suzuki. She was the writer and creator of many mystery story-based games, the J.B. Herald series, Trace Memory, Hotel Dusk for the DS, the 1920 series, the 1920 series and J.B. Herald being computer games in particular, although they were ported to consoles later. But her writing and her stories, her games, had a big impact on Japanese adventure games that came after them. So we wanted to focus on her and tell the world, hey, this is some of the work she's done. This is her story. So we tried to produce these at a high level, a high quality level, to make sure that they are interesting, that people want to see them. But ultimately, <laughs> these kind of projects cost money. We tell people, like, here's what we have, and if you want more, please come support us so we can make more for you. So we're very happy with our documentaries so far. We have more lined up, but really to get them produced, we need everyone's support. Yeah, so that's our primary awareness side of things is the documentaries. I also mentioned... Earlier, we have our online database, which we're in the process of making fully available in English. That's going to be a useful tool for people. Again, awareness, just making sure that information is there about games, about Japanese gaming culture, about the need for preservation. Yeah, kind of what we do in that regard. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. Now, yeah. So when we do these interviews, a lot of people actually, they are super surprised that we approached them talking about what they did in the 80s, 90s. Who cares about that? And then it's a lot of convincing. Can you come on the show and talk about it and stuff? How is it now that you say that in the, <clears throat> sorry, that in the Japanese or Asian culture and the general opinion is, okay, everything has its time and after that it was nice we had it but we don't really care how is it when you approach developers from from japan and stuff they are probably not as ready to speak as you would wish now all the production so i should put a little asterisk here all the production is done in tokyo the main archive the headquarters joseph they're all in tokyo i'm in osaka about three or four hours away by by bullet train so I communicate with them remotely. I haven't been there for the production or any of the interviews. I've basically done the translation work on it and the publicity for it. <clears throat> so I can't say exactly how they react when we first approach them. <clears throat> my feeling is though that, excuse me. <clears throat> my feeling is though that indeed, some people are more open to talk than others. I have even done some of my own, like I have my own website, I have my own game research that I do separate from GPS, which is more focused on game disassembly kind of work. But occasionally, if I want to research something a little bit deeper, I will try to track down a developer and send them a message. And sometimes I can find them. And when I do, if I send them a message, it's uh, maybe about 10% of the time they'll actually respond. <clears throat> Most of the time, really? they will straight up ignore me, yeah. Wow. And that could be because my Japanese isn't perfect, but also because some of them I think just, yeah, I don't do that anymore. I have no interest in talking about it. Wow. But some of them do, and some of them are very open to talk, and I get a lot of good information. That's always fun. But my feeling is that they're probably surprised more than anything that, like, you know, wow, really? Do you want to interview me? Again, not having seen them when that happens, I can't say for sure, but that's my feeling. It's common for, like I said, your Miyamoto's, your Yuji Naka, your, your Gail Kojima. They get interview requests all the time. That's not a big deal for them because they're superstars. But we don't, we're not targeting superstars. We're targeting lesser known people to explain to the world 
the, they had importance and an impact, maybe not a degree to, to the degree of the superstars, but definitely they had a big impact and we want to share their story around the world as well. So I imagine they're pretty surprised when we first, uh, first talked to them about it, yes. Now you would think that thanks to the internet and global activities that the mm -hmm. preservation or the, I don't know how to say, the general few should change from the Japanese. There should be some influence from the outside changing people's mind or isn't that really happening? There's a common trope about Japan that you still see people wearing kimono when you get on the train. That it's a city of extreme technological heights, but at the same time we're still using rubber stamps and fax machines. That there's a coexistence of old and new. Oh, fax and machines? Germany is also very known for. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> but Japan is well known in particular for maintaining a very strict, I shouldn't say strict, for maintaining traditional culture while at the same time slowly adopting new culture. I think things are slow to change here. They change over time. And with the internet, things are changing faster. But we still have older generations in charge and things don't change. And there is a cultural, that's the word I'm looking for, a cultural push to keep things the same. That old saying, the nail that sticks up gets hammered down in, in Japan. That's true. It's changing. Things are changing faster to the internet. But I think in general, things are still the old style quite a bit. So I think as the years go on, the GPS has certainly gotten bigger. We've had more supporters, not only around the world, but in Japan as well. We started with 10 permanent members back in, I believe it was 2009 is when it was we obtained NPO status. There was 10 full-time members then. Now we have 29. And of course, now we have hundreds of supporters, supporting members around the world. So it's a gradual change, and that's part of the awareness is to make people, a lot of people just hadn't even thought about video games as anything more than toy. Nintendo, a Nintendo, I always find it interesting, around the world, you have your Smash Brothers, very serious, right? You have uh, Zelda, respected, a huge number of fans around the world. Mario is the very face of video games, right? But here, Nintendo is just... They're a little bit separate. You don't think of Nintendo as, like, for gamers. And I guess that's true around the world. Nintendo makes toys. The original Famicom was little more than an empty plastic shell and a very minimal circuit board inside. Right. Famicom was a toy. The Nintendo Entertainment System, the NES, was a toy. And that was the, how many people grew up thinking of it. It was just hooked up to the TV next to the baseball bat or something else. It was something that people played with. So a lot of people still think of that in the same cultural terms, that video games are just toys. They don't have any cultural relevance. They don't have any cultural significance. It just doesn't even enter their heads for the most part to even think about preserving them. But the same happened for movies in the 1920s, the 1930s. Movies were coming out. They were disposable things on the screen, and no one thought to preserve them. It wasn't until many years later people thought about from a historical perspective, oh, we should probably have saved those. So we're just trying to be a little bit ahead of the curve here to get these things preserved, even if the majority of people haven't quite gotten that concept yet. We want to explain to people, like, yes, these are worthy of being preserved, and you probably should. But until that point happens, we've just got to do what we can. <laughs> so the hope goes into the new generation of Japanese people. Is that uh, like To that? an extent, yes. Okay. To an extent, yes. But we're Really, we're looking beyond the people in general. We really want government the government to form its own agency going back to what we talked about earlier just like it has in europe we really want a national video game preservation division just like there is for movies and music and everything like that we want if we can get the government to to 
put their support behind it. I think that's the best thing we can aim for. Certainly, we want people to understand the importance of old video games, of any video games, as, a, as cultural artifacts. But I think the more important goal is to have government support and to get them to have a completely legitimate national body that can present themselves to corporations. Ultimately, we're a bunch of just guys. We're an MPO and we do things very seriously and we have support from around the world and we can show all this to the game companies, but ultimately they're gonna see the legitimacy of a governmental body. And that's really what we're aiming for more than anything else, I think. You mentioned Nintendo. I always see a difference dealing with Nintendo compared to Sega, for example. Uh, we made several approaches when it comes to interviews with Nintendo and the press agencies always tell us, no, Nintendo will not talk about the NES Classic Mini. No right. way we will do an interview yep. with that. And I even didn't find any interview out there. However, when we approached Sega and they were like, okay, interview with about Sega Mania five years ago, no problem. Let's go right. ahead. So the approach is totally different from the two big companies which is totally surprising me. I think so as an American, like on my point of view is only from America growing up, so I can't speak for other countries. But I think how Sega conducted themselves, how they were presented in other countries is very different from what happened in Japan. Maybe not very different, but they definitely had a different trajectory. In America, Sega was the, oh, the Sega scream and the welcome to the next level and Genesis does what Nintendo don't. They were very in your face about it. <laughs> yes, um, they were. Yes, they were. And yeah. Nintendo also tried to counter a little bit with a little bit of that attitude in the 90s. And, but in Japan, Sega was more well-known and remains more well-known for their arcade, their game centers. They got into home consoles a bit, but the Mega Drive, which is called the Genesis in America, never took off here like it did in America. Like for me, again, growing up in America, like the Super Nintendo and the Genesis were like head to head. You go to a friend's house, there's a 50% chance they have one of the two, or both. But in Japan, the, there was no contest. It was the Famicom and the Super Famicom, and then the weird, otaku-y, nerdy, gamery people had the Genesis, the Mega Drive. So there's there a big imbalance here. So I've always, I still think of Nintendo as the Disney of video games. They're this huge corporation, family-friendly. Yes. They don't need... They don't need your interview. Not that they have that attitude, but they, Sega has <laughs> it, embraced. It, it's a perfect analogy, though, the Disney of, uh, of video games. Yeah, that's exactly how Disney of video games are. The, they're the McDonald's of fast food. Mm -hmm. Very family friendly. Very. They push this to everyone, and you'll like it. They're very well known. That's mm -hmm. how I tend to think of them. But Sega, again, always on a little bit of the underdog, always a little bit more in your face, always chasing after Nintendo, at least in Japan. I've always, and they've always had that, they've always had a kind of quirky nature. There was, uh, you may or may not know these, in the Dreamcast era, there was the Yukawa Senmu commercials. Now, Yukawa Senmu, I forgot his first name, but Yukawa is, is his last name. Managing director, Senmu is managing director. So managing director Yukawa uh, was an actual executive at Sega. And he starred in a commercial where acting as himself, like a Sega executive, gets in his car and he overhears some kids talking about, oh, Sega sucks, oh, I like my PlayStation. He's... And then there's all these scenes in the course of him being, oh, sad. Oh, what should we do? How do we make the, how do we make the Dreamcast sell? And the commercial was a huge hit. It was, it was self-deprecating Sega humor. There's, they made a kind of a video game, not really about him, but he's in an SGGG. He's like wondering, oh, how do I sell Dreamcast? Uh, and so they made a, a series of these commercials and they're all, they're not, they're self-deprecating-ish in the end. Yeah, so he makes the Dreamcast a success. Great. But you, you don't see Nintendo doing stuff like that. Very little. So again, Sega has embraced their underdogness. They've, 
they're a lot, yeah, they've embraced fan gaming to a great extent. They're not going to go after you with a copyright notice for right. making a Sonic fan game. God knows the Sonic hacking and fan game scene is huge. And Sega is we just, just like saw said, that you know, on the uh, the C64. Someone someone made a Sonic the Hedgehog a port, yeah, a yeah. port of Sonic on the C64, and Sega was like, "Yep, yeah, go for it." Yep. And same thing happened with yeah, same thing happened with Mario Super Mario Brothers, the original one, and I don't think that Nintendo came after them, but oh, they did, they did, they did, they did. Yeah, I they thought did. that was a, I thought that was a rumor. kind of surprising. No, they did. So. I was glad enough. I secured my copy while it was still yep. available. Available. <laughs> uh, or you don't have any of that. No, that's not hot. Yeah, but that's right. actually the difference. Yeah, that's actually the difference in attitude. Yeah, that that's really the thing. And that and I've also read. I don't know if that is true. When Outrun Coast to Coast in 2006 was released, that Sega actually had access to the old arcade hardware and game code and so on from 85 so they could mm. easily get those game data out of it for the for the reboot of the brand for the and while nintendo was actually making press for taking pirated <laughs> out yes. of the internet yeah. because yes. they don't have preservation of yeah. their own so that's wow that's amusing there's you've heard about the nintendo giga leak right i assume it happened in recent times and officially that too. can't support yeah. it yeah. yeah officially can't support it officially don't support it but speaking personally it was very interesting to see the data inside there that they had these pretty extensive backups of some of their old games and even some of the data that they found in there was different versions of games that we didn't have dumps of or pre-release or even later versions that never got released so it seemed like from these giga leaks nintendo was doing a pretty darn good job of preserving their own games whereas somewhat ironically nintendo i'm sorry sega has a history of not doing so famously they wanted to include the so again as a sonic fan the old games fan our holy grail is probably it's called the 90 Tokyo Game Show Sonic 1 ROM. It was a copy of Sonic 1 on display, just an auto demo, I believe. But it had someone, basically, it was the earliest running code for Sonic the Hedgehog. And if you find that, you are king of the internet, king of the world among the Sonic mm. scene. So we've been looking for that for years, haven't found it. But rather famously, they wanted to include it in, I believe, Sonic Mega Collection or something like that. And Yuji Naka came out and said, well, we looked for it, we simply can't find it. And I seem to recall hearing that somewhere as well when they made Sonic Jam. They couldn't quite get the source. They didn't have the source code backed up for it. They had to like take it apart and emulate parts of it together. So just anecdotally, I've heard stories that Sega isn't quite so good. Maybe they, I'm sure they are now. They've learned their lesson, I'm sure. But some of their old stuff, they don't have backed up quite as much, whereas Nintendo does. So it's surprising to me to hear things like that Nintendo was using dumps of something online. That just means probably was yeah. someone didn't have access to something. I imagine. Or they just but. got lazy with it because everyone else is doing it, so. <laughs> or, again, approaching this delicately, there are lots of stories where, at least, again, in Sega, I don't know about Nintendo, where Japanese staff isn't as open about sharing things that they have with the Western staff. So that could have been. That's purely conjecture. I'm not implying anything, but who knows? There's There, there has been a history of um, between international teams. Interesting. But, but the data leak and... Uh, that's, why, but, that's why I call them no friendo. 
<laughs> anyway, the data leak resulted in some things being preserved. Like, I think there was a McDonald's training game that was found. Oh, really? And, and, oh, and, I did hear about that for the DS, I think, yes? Yes, exactly yeah. for the DS and stuff. Yeah. Right, right. So, <laughs> so, I mean, for, from the GPS's point of view, that's where things, again, get a little bit not so straightforward. We, as a nonprofit organization who is looking to preserve video games, we want to tell companies, hey, if you don't want to put the effort into preserving your data, send it to us and we will do it. We will show them, like, here's the rigorous things we do to preserve this data. So we want to tell them, like, hey, give us your old games, give us your backups, and we'll preserve them for you. But if they don't want to do that, we want to ensure that they are doing it in-house. We want to make sure they're going around and finding all the little floppy disks and getting them properly preserved. They don't want to, they don't want to trust those with it. Fine. Our goal is to preserve the games. If you do it, great. When the GPS first launched, <clears throat> the original goal was to federate all the collectors in Japan, all the video game collectors in Japan, to come up with these standards that say, okay, they have this, it's being preserved like this, they're holding it in, in these specialized containers which keep out humidity kind of thing. Standards for cataloging and for preservation to get all these collectors to work together. That kind of didn't work so well. And the realization was that we need to do it ourselves if they're not going to do it. But that, the same goes for corporations. We want them to preserve their games. We want that, I guess that's an awareness slash partnership thing. We want to show them how, if they'll listen. We want to show them the importance of it, if they'll listen. So to see things in the Giga League where Nintendo pretty clearly had these massive backups, what looked to be decent backups, Obviously, it's a tricky thing because personally, I'm like, oh, this information is fantastic. GPS, we can't touch it. And speaking officially, no one in the GPS touches it, and we can't for obvious reasons. But it is good to see as an external viewer that they have done this work. So even if they're not public about it, at least it's reassuring to see that they have done some, some in-house work to get to preserve some of this old information, this old data they have. The YouTubers of the world, they need a job also. So it's up to them, actually. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> see, see Kelsey Lewin, for example, from the Video Game History Foundation. She's 28. So the generation younger than us will hold up the torch of preservation and going back Certainly. to learn about stuff that was long before they were even born. And that's part of it. We want to preserve this for the researchers, certainly. And like I said, we would love to just give it to anyone so that people can enjoy it. We can't, but at least it's there so things change. Yes, kids, anyone 100 years from now can play it and say, oh, this is fun. It may be low resolution compared to my brain implant VR or whatever, but oh, this is <laughs> but still at, fun. At the same know? time, as civilization rebuilds after the inevitable cataclysm, <laughs> yes. this will be cutting edge. <laughs> yep, yep. Those, those solid state icons from the 80s might still be running. Replace a couple yeah. of ambassadors, bam, start over with your basic programming. Why not? <laughs> and we got it all there preserved in the archive. Yeah. And again, the whole idea here is to preserve it at least 100 years. We have specialized containers. I don't know if you've seen any of the pictures in the newsletters or anything. There's a special community controlled room where everything is kept. We don't just take a video game in its box and put it on a shelf. We take the game out. We very carefully heat remove the glue. The box is completely flattened for cardboard boxes. That's scanned. That's kept in these specialized large format folders, which are kept flat. The game is stored elsewhere. The manuals are stored elsewhere in their own specialized containers. Everything has its own little QR code on the box, so you can scan it, and that's kept in our database. You can find everything. So again, it's not just a matter of having a shelf with a bunch of box games on it. We are 
archival grade, preserving every single little bit of it, every single piece of paper in it. And so it's not just about extracting the data and preserving the data, which is admittedly fragile. It's also about preserving the physical aspect of the game. Awesome. So, yeah, we're pretty serious about it. <laughs> yeah. So what are your plans moving forward for the next year? Anything back planned that you can announce? There will be another GameU documentary as long as we can get the funding for it. Again, that we rely mostly on our members for that. We have had our hands tied in the last year or so thanks to the pandemic, but we're still moving forward as much as we can with our preservation activities. We don't have, to my knowledge, unless Joseph is keeping it hidden, <laughs> we don't have, to my knowledge, any new major huge announcements forward. We're just going to keep doing what we're doing, which is obtaining the games, scanning them, extracting the data, preserving them. And I think that's really our goal. So if we can keep that up, then I think it's a success. And if the documentary is probably our most visible product now, you could say. So I think that's going to be our face going forward is more documentaries, as long as we can keep getting funding for them. Because we really want to spotlight these people or their stories before they pass along, as we all do. That's a form of preservation, too. That's actually another point. A lot of those interviews we done in the last 10 years, many of them now have historical status because those people are not around anymore. Yeah, yeah. that's really true. Yeah. yeah. Again, these people were in their teens in the 80s. I was born in 1982. I'm turning 40 this year. If these people were teens, they're getting <laughs> into their 50s and 60s. That's still young, relatively speaking, but it's also not so young, relatively speaking. Yeah. We want to hear from them. We want to preserve their point of view as much as we can, as soon as we can. And there's a lot of people who were more or less nameless, and we want to, at least nameless outside of Japan, I should say. So we, we definitely want to share their information, their stories. That's another thing. When I was interviewing Ralph Baer, who invented home video games when he was uh, 91, a lot of people were like... He didn't invent them when he was 91. You talked to him when he was 91. <laughs> exactly. How old is he now? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I had some feedback saying, why do you put such an old man behind a webcam and let him talk to you for an hour? Why not? Exactly. Why would yeah. you put a World War II veteran in front of a camera and let them tell their story? Arguably, right. that's more important, but it's still a story with historical significance. Yeah, yeah. Why wouldn't you? Exactly. Oh, and I didn't know that this would be his last interview he ever gave. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> because because a few months later he died of cancer. That was mm. pretty sad. Yeah, at this point, you don't know, actually. You don't know yeah. um, exactly. how your stuff is used a few years in the future, perhaps. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Another example would be right. the Commodore pet phone that AJ reviewed. And then seven years later, it was used in in a video by a YouTuber for pre preservation of history and what happened yeah. with yeah, the yeah. Commodore pet phone and stuff. Such things yeah, are right. important, even if you don't know it at the time you're doing it. And real quick, for people that have been watching the video and saw me step away for two seconds, it wasn't for lack of interest. It was just because I had to get him off of the bed. <laughs> I figured there was something up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It Dogs always work. Yes, I yes. would probably be doing the same with my kiddo, but my wife has got him out with the grandparents for the weekends. Ah, <laughs> a little break. <awesome. laughs> and you're stuck with us. <laughs> ah, trade off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so perhaps before we finish, let's talk a bit about your own preservation and project stuff. You mentioned it a bit earlier that that you have run that you're running your own side interest. Perhaps let's talk Goodbye. a bit about that, if you want. <laughs> 
of course. Uh, sure. So yeah, I go by, I have a website, sudden-dace.net, dace, Japanese, D-E-S-U. So sudden-desu.net on Twitter is at sudden And basically I disassemble games, mostly arcade games. I said disassemble the code, not the physical device and look for debug functions that are unused, any Easter eggs that were previously unknown about, any unused data. When I first got into this, arcade games were not ignored, but they were not investigated as much as all the Super Famicom, the Super Nintendo, the Genesis and Mega Drive games. Those had a lot of focus. Those have had a lot of research done on them. So I was trying to do something new getting into arcade game disassembly. And I've had a lot of fun doing it. I've found lots of, uh, lots of things over the years. I gave a talk a couple of a year ago or so now going over like some of my favorites and discussing how game disassembly and finding things like unused data and debug functions is actually a form of preservation as well. And the, the idea behind that is that if you take data from a ROM, data from a CD, you are making a copy of the entire thing. If there's unused code or data on there, you have a copy of it. And unless someone goes in and finds it, does the archaeology to extract it, to restore it, you're never going to see it. So you are restoring it. So it's a kind of preservation. Obviously, it's not the same as actually the more important is preserving the data itself, making sure it doesn't disappear forever. But there's also stuff um, in there. When you look through code, a lot of times coders will stick little messages and random things in there. And it's, yeah, exactly. It's like preserving like the mindset of the person creating the thing at the time. There was, I mentioned earlier, occasionally I will track down a developer and ask them. I had found in one game called Moja, M-O-U-J-A, Moja. It's in Mames, an arcade game. It's, you might know Money Puzzle Exchanger for the Neo Geo. It's very similar to that in play. You have coins and you, it's a puzzle game, so they connect them and they disappear, but it's based on cats. Like all the characters are cats, they're cute little cats. So I took apart that game, found some debug functions. Okay, that was neat. That was fun to restore them. But then I found an Easter egg that was completely disconnected from the code. There is no way to access it without hacking. But when you bring it up, it shows a digitized picture of the five or six people on the staff who made the game. One of them being Tiny Tomo, is his pen name. And he had also included a message in ASCII text and being together on Tiny Tomo and then an, an ancient email address. But looking at his name through other games too, I managed to find his real name, found him on Facebook and messaged him. And he was very helpful in talking about things. He had left another Easter egg in another game, Airbuster, I think. And he had said, I can't remember what the text is off the top of my head, but it was something on the lines of some girl's name and a short little message. So I asked him, who's that name? He's, oh, that was my girlfriend at the time. We're not together anymore. <laughs> okay. But it was cool <laughs> to be able to connect this hidden Easter egg and talk to the person who found it. And that Easter egg was not documented. If anyone ever found it, I don't know. It certainly wasn't documented online. So I, that's really exciting for me. That's why this sort of work, we call it digital archaeology. Which, which is going into the data, finding bits and pieces, whether it's code, whether it's data like, like artwork or music or whatever, and pulling it out and restoring it. <laughs> Biggest find, probably the one I'm most proud of and most enjoy, Twinkle Star Sprites for the DOGO. Shooting game, very cute, interesting concept where it's half shooting, it's a versus shooting game. It's a very interesting concept, very fun game, very cute, very well produced. Took that apart, found some debug functions. Found an interesting thing with a little bit of ASCII text, Jiken program, Jiken is Japanese for experiment. That's interesting, but the code wasn't connected anywhere, so a little bit of hacking, connected up, and holy crap, it's a hidden fighting game <laughs> using one of the, the one of the characters, the game's bosses, is a sentient birthday cake. So it's these two birthday cakes, and obviously it's not a super polished thing. It was just some programmer had a, a free day or something and uh, made these two cakes fight, and <laughs> it was this whole hidden mini game. Completely there in the code. Anyone who owns a copy of this game has that game, has the data for that game in the cartridge. 
course, they can't access it in any way, but it's there. So pulled it out, got it hooked up. (laughs) Someone in the Neo Geo community took it and ran with it. And they made, took the hack, the hack that I made, which connected and just made it start up. And then they took it even further. They added more graphics to it. They added health bars to the top. They made it into a full game. So there is Cake Fighter, which now exists. And he sent me, (laughs) I might have it right here. Wow. So we learned about Cake Fighter today. <laughs> yes. So this was originally a hidden developer fun thing in Twinkle Star Sprites. We hacked it out. Some fans went and expanded it into a full game. And then they made actual Neo Geo cartridges of it. That says Cake Fighter mm. there in Japanese. Nice. Awesome. Yeah, so, and he sent awesome. me one out. so I'm very grateful for that. But yeah, no, it was really cool that happened. We, I believe on Twitter, too, one of the devs, I had messaged him and asked, hey, we found this game. And he's, oh, yeah, I remember playing that, the staff, Cake Fighter, we called it. And that's where the official name came from. He didn't tell me any more than that. But, yeah, no, it was really cool to dig that out. And, again, I consider that a kind of preservation. It's not quite, I don't, I consider GPSs work far more important. But in my own little niche there, I, yeah, enjoy that kind of work as well. (laughs) Awesome. That absolutely is preservation because it's. there's preserving the game itself then there's also preserving like the environment and what brought that game to into existence that's important as well the context in which that game existed yep we can learn a lot from looking at the code from disassembling it we can tell what things might have been rushed what things were planned that didn't get finished it tells us a story it tells us that the devs had some free time that they had enough time to write a small fighting game inside this larger game which itself was already very well produced so Either they had a lot of staff or they had a lot of time or one guy was just really good and cranked that out real quick. I don't know. but <laughs> And you can tell some games. Another game I spent a lot of time on that I'm really proud of is Sega Sonic Arcade. Uh, it was a one of the uh, one of the only Sonic-based arcade games. It's the one with the trackball. You make them run. I'll be honest, it's not the best game in the world, but I took it apart and found a bunch of debug stuff inside and found tons and tons of unused graphics, of unused possible enemies, unused code. Things that hinted that there was another version out there. It looked like maybe the graphic artist had a bit of time or something, and then the code was really rushed. But there's a lot there, so that tells a story too. We may not be able to. We have to infer a lot of it, but maybe this was rushed in some ways, and there had a lot more planned. But yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Awesome. Yeah, absolutely. And now you have your history preserved about the Game Preservation Society, also. That's nice. Yes, exactly. So where can people find and inform themselves about what the GPS is doing and your and, own and what, your own and what you're doing? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we can add mine at the tail end there because more important, I feel, is the GPS. The GPS <laughs> is where people need to support. My, my stuff is just a hobby. But game preservation, we have on Twitter, we're GamePres International, G-A-M-E-P-R-E-S-I-N-T-L, GamePres International. That's the English language Twitter. I mean, we do have the Japanese Twitter, which is just at GamePres, no international at the end if you want to see that. But that's the best way to keep up to date with what we do. We do run a Discord as well. We launched that earlier this year. And if you're interested at all in game history, in game preservation, in Japanese video game culture, yeah, please join us. Come talk with us. The information for that should be on the Twitter as well. We also should have a couple links on the Twitter there. We have a short documentary that was made by the NHK. Before we even started doing our documentary series, NHK did a special on the GPS that does a very good overview on the kind of work we do, introduces you to Joseph and Fukuda-san and a few other people. Definitely check that out if you want an introduction to the GPS. 
And we, again, if you want to join, please join as a supporting member. The, it's the, we have originally it was a monthly payment, but we've originally I'm sorry, originally it was a yearly payment, a yearly lump sum. We've introduced a monthly payment system to make things easier for people. Uh, again, if you join as a member, we're not providing dumps of ROMs or discs or anything, but you are helping to preserve these these games for the future. Members also have access to some of our limited content. We do translate. I'm sorry, transcripts of some of our previous events. Those are available to our members that aren't just open to everyone. Our newsletters are normally members only with the exception of the financial report which is once a year so members have access to those members happen to be in japan now that we've reopened the borders come visit us in tokyo visit the archive check out all the stuff we have and what we're doing there and you can see what your money is going to so again come check us out check us out on twitter that's a good gateway to it the website as well gameprez.org i guess that's really the keyword here is gameprez g-a-m-e-p-r-e-s game preservation society in tokyo and uh, yeah lots of links to learn more about us Awesome. Yeah. Very cool. And now your own stuff? <laughs> no, my own stuff. Okay, Twitter. Again, Twitter's a good gateway for this. I'm on Twitter as Sudden Dace. That's S-U-D-E-N-D-E-S-U. The double entendre of video games, you have Sudden Death. So this is like the Japanese pronunciation for death. So it, it's nonsense. I chose it at random. Anyway, at Sudden Dace on Twitter, and that links to my website, which has all the articles. But my Twitter is just like a mishmash of... I. I do some scans of some of my own collection of stuff because I, I buy a lot of living in Japan. I have access to a lot of uh, older video game periodicals, magazines, flyers, that sort of thing. So I do some scans of those and and just ran lots of random stuff. Lots of all but all video game retro related. And of course the disassembly work I do and various other technical, digital, researchy type stuff, but all related to retro video games. So yeah, sudden days. That's the keyword there. Awesome. Thanks we'll a lot. Links to all of that in the podcast description below. Exactly. So check it out. Now, the last thing before we let you go, and I hang on. Work. I want to. Yeah. I want to ask what, sure. just just one question. <laughs> this could, this may be off the record because I don't know sure. how relevant it is. But you mentioned that Japan has like a forward-looking philosophy, like they don't really look kind of everything has kind of look like its place, and then they move on. Yeah. And that yeah, kind of that might. Yeah answer sort of one of my big kind of the questions that I've had for the longest time is that we're about the same vintage. So mm. we're be about 40 or so. About to be. Yeah. yeah, the C64, which is, we started out as a C64 disc magazine, existed mm. in Japan. In fact, I think the ver first version of the Max was created in Japan. There was a Japanese version with Japanese ROMs and all okay. that, and yet... And there's a demo scene. There's like a C64 demo scene everywhere in the world, but I hear nothing about it in Japan. Like no one ever used one in Japan. Like I, I see no media about it. There's no modern scene with it in there, and it's just it just it just it confuses me. Right. I can't speak for the demo scene as to why there's not a huge demo scene here, but I, for why the C64 and even the Atari, like your, your C64, I was raised on the Atari 600XL, 800XL, that was my thing. And there's a C64 yeah, had, kind of... I had an 800XL too, yeah. There you go, yeah, yeah, so I, I was Atari vintage, but same idea, 8-bit. But in Japan, here, let me grab a book real quick, here we go. There was just an absolute cornucopia of personal computers that mm -hmm. were going to be cheaper, because they're produced in Japan, why would you import something when there's Japanese computers right here that are all across the whole spectrum of prices? Sure. Again, there was the PC-88s. There was, I'm trying to find some good examples in here. 
I got a little book here of, it's actually, I think it's produced in Spain, honestly, but it's a collection of, of advertisements from around the world that all feature just pretty girls in computers. <laughs> but there's a lot of Japanese ones in here. Here we go, the Hit Bits. These were MSX-based. That's okay. uh, Seiko Matsuda there. It's a very famous pop singer. But uh, there, yeah, there was the Sony Hit Bits. There was uh, the Pasopia. There was... This one. There's an ad for a PC-88 that I was talking about, and after that was the PC-98. There, there was tons and tons of computers here. That, this is unrelated, but you might enjoy it. There's a Commodore ad. Oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah. But I think that's why things like the C64 and the Atari never really took off here, because there was just so many options from all of the major companies. Casio, Hitachi, NEC, of course, PC-88, Sony, the HitBit. They were all making their own computers. All the big companies were making their own home computers. So there wasn't really a need for, the market was absolutely flooded. And as far as I can tell, the Japanese ones were, understandably, quite popular here. So that explains why there was a lack of C64. As for why there wasn't really a demo scene, that I can't really speak to. I don't know enough about it to say the particular history there. I know that a lot of the popular ones were MSX-based, MSX being a standard, of course. So you get an MSX game, it'll run on all these computers. So there might have been less tinkering Maybe just like, oh, you buy something, it'll work with whatever one you buy. So there was less tinkering at a specific to this machine level. I'm not sure. But that, that probably explains why there was less of a foreign computer influence and more of these, uh, just more of the Japanese ones that outside of Japan right. people really don't know about. It's reversed that way. Yeah. You yeah. talk about the yeah. MSX it, it here, kinda... people are going to know, but outside of Japan, they're probably not. Yeah, that that that, that kind of that spurs a whole new topic because you know we talked with when we did an interview with with, with Yandex and and the whole Russia thing. They've got machines that that oh yeah, I've never heard of outside yeah. of these Soviet machines that were absolutely bonkers that were held yeah. together with duct tape and vacuum tubes we're and stuff. Just starting to learn about them here. That right, even yeah. made is starting to emulate these really wacky Russian computers, and that's great. That's great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Awesome. I don't know anything about them. <laughs> You're right. Oh, yeah, yeah. So well, maybe you're not going to take a look at the the Japanese computer scene in the in the future. Yeah, that's why we're doing this interview, trying to dig up what, yeah, what yeah. Japan has to offer, because nobody <laughs> else is doing it at, at a large level. And their NTSC, which is, that's just yeah. like oh, being yeah, you, here. We play this stuff pretty much, and the power supply doesn't require, at least for America, I know Europe is different, but mostly yeah. <laughs> it doesn't require much conversion. And that's one of the things, GPS, I don't think Japanese are trying to hide anything. I think, again, culturally, there's a certain predisposition to being private to not sharing things quite so readily. But on the other hand, they're not like actively hiding away their information. It's just, and there is a bit of a language barrier. A lot of them don't speak English well. And so you gotta have this intersection of people who speak English or at least some foreign language very well and who have that knowledge of computers and video games and who have the interest in sharing it. So if you get all three, yeah, you get a few people who will share it online just for their own hobby. but. I don't think there's you're going to find people who have all three of those. You're right. going to find your game enthusiasts who don't speak English very well, or your English speakers, your native English speakers here, not any native, but very fluent English speakers here who just don't have interest in video games. That that cross-section of all three, that perfect intersection is a little yeah. bit rare, I think. So that's yeah. one of the things GPS wants to do, though, is, again, it's not just saving away our games and hiding them away in our little archive. It's we want to share the history and the unique culture of the Japanese video game line, starting from... The late set, well, the middle seventies, really. Even the PC six thousand, that was as you get really back there. Yep. All right. Talk thank to you. Then. Talk to you later. Bye bye. Right. Thank, thank bye. you, sir. Have a good one.